Welcome to the Set Yourself Free podcast, real stories of ending emotional abuse and taking your life back. I'm your host, Carrie Veach, owner of Set Yourself Free. I am a life and success coach that believes we all have limitless potential within us with the right tools and support. Trauma or past hurt might be a part of your story, but it does not have to be the entire story. We all have different versions of what freedom means, and I'm here to help you unlock your perfect version of how to set yourself free. Join us for season three, where we follow five extremely brave women who share their stories of what it took to get to the other side of trauma and abuse. Through listening to their stories, you will know that you are not alone, that shame can only grow in secret, and that it absolutely does get better on the other side. By hearing their stories, you will gain insight and tools for ways that you can access your own power and do the work to set yourself free. All of the magic you need is waiting deep inside of you, and these women are here to help you tap into it. Let's dive in. Uh, My name is Belinda Smith. I'm the president and founder of Unhooked Life. I'm a master certified mindset and confidence coach, and I help women slay those confidence demons so that they can finally break through their own glass ceilings, achieve the big dreams, make the money, and not leave here wondering what if. My name is Jessica Wilkinson. In my uh, life coaching business, I go by Coach Jess, so I'm trying to get out there known as that. Um, I have my degree in psychology and criminology. I worked a little bit as a probation officer. Um, That led me to going back to school for counseling and then Um, When I was doing my counseling internship, I started a small housekeeping business and I fell in love with entrepreneurship, um, got a business coach, and she kind of let me know that my skills and the impact that I wanted to have would be best suited as a life coach as opposed to a counselor. So I took all of the skills I learned in counseling, psychology, and as a probation officer and built a transformational life coaching business focusing on Um, people who are healing from trauma and domestic abuse situations, um, obviously having stabilized and gotten themselves out of that situation first. Um, Yeah, I'm on Instagram as uh, at life plus coaching and my website is lifepluselp.com. So Renee Michelle, I'm here in Queensland in Australia and I'm a mother to two amazing teenagers And I'm a transformational recovery coach for high-performing females that have experienced child abuse and trauma. So I'm the only woman here in Australia doing that, which is so, so cool. You know, we have so many coaches working with, you know, all different diverse ranges of women, but I really do focus on high-performing professional women, entrepreneurs, business owners, because it is something that we get to that stage of our lives and figure we should have it all together, right? And I suffered child abuse from the age of 10, sexually, physically and emotionally abused and neglected my entire childhood, which then filtered into adolescence. And as we know with the cycle of trauma, addictions and violent relationships and destructive patterns followed. And once I've been able to come out the other side of that, my whole joy and purpose now is giving back and helping other women women find their value and purpose. My name is Heather Fritz. Um, I am 30 and I got into coaching and I'm a sex, love and relationship coach with a focus on a little bit of trauma and how to break down the armor that you've been carrying around to have a healthy relationship and sex life. 
My name is Stephanie McPhail. I am the expert in helping brilliant women date up. I am an author of a number one new release in codependency called Being Loved Shouldn't Hurt. I am also a mentor for women who are looking to stop the cycle of unhealthy relationships. And I actually have one-on-one -on -one coaching. I do group coaching and I do speaking events as well. I have a background in crisis counseling, a double master's degree in health and education. And I've got a really good background in unhealthy relationships. Where were you at the beginning of your journey, Belinda? Okay, so when all of this started for me, I had just moved to Nashville, Tennessee from a little, little tiny town in the state of West Virginia. And I will be honest, I was very uh, inexperienced in relationships, very inexperienced in sort of, I knew what I knew, but I had no idea. Uh, a lot. I, I didn't have a lot of life experience. I grew up in a very fundamentalist upbringing. My grandpa was a preacher. I was the music department in the country church. So I was very mm -hmm. sheltered. And so I ended up here, obviously pursuing music. That's what you do when you come to Nashville and started joining some organizations around town just so I could meet people. So I ended up meeting the person that we will ultimately talk about in Nashville and through one of those organizations. And did you find yourself at that time feeling confident? Did you have any idea around like confidence or what that even meant? I thought I was the coolest person coming and going. <laughs> I did. I just thought, oh, I, I've got, you know, I came from, and this, this sounds so silly now, like, you know, years, like being a grown up and looking back, you know, I'd come out of college. I did really well in college. I had a lot of good friends. I've been through, you know, I thought I'm, I'm cool. You know, of course people want to hang out with me. It was so naive, like having no idea and no life experience of what, who I was as a person the buttons that could be pushed for me, how quickly I could lose sense of myself. Mm. And uh, so I thought, I thought I had it together and would still call myself a strong person during that point, but I just had zero self-awareness for what was really coming. Mm. So you find yourself in Nashville meeting this person and... Can you tell us a little bit about what happens once you meet him? When I first met him, I had the biggest crush. He was so cute, great eyes, <laughs> you know, all of those things. You're like, oh, he is so... And everyone's like, mm, there's a little song going. I'm like, I know, I think there might be a thing. And uh, he was great. We would, we would have all these big events and he would always seek me out. He told me how pretty I was. He told me all the things that I wanted to hear, you know, I hope to hear. Mm -hmm. And he was very, very intelligent, very successful. And someone, uh, I mean, he was good looking, you know, it's like, wow, hot guy. Yay me. And it was just <laughs> so like, you know, young and naive again, like, no, oh, there could be warnings, although there may have been during that initial time, but I really, even looking back and going through it all, I don't see anything other than, you know, we were just starting out and getting to know each other. So what, what happened uh, in terms of 
something like a red flag or something telling you that, oh, maybe this is not actually what I thought it was? The first time that I thought, wow, something is not right. I was at his house. He was going to make me dinner and I was standing in the kitchen and he had dropped a towel onto the kitchen floor. I leaned over to pick it up and just was going to place it back on the counter. And it was like, like this rage machine came out of nowhere. His face turned red, his neck turned red. And he's just, what are you doing? Are you disgusting? And it really took me back. I have never had anyone do that to me. Like people don't yell in my house. Like that was not a thing. Mm -hmm. And it was so shocking that I just put (laughs) put it in his laundry room. He directed me to the laundry room. I put it there. And immediately my head started thinking, that couldn't have just happened. Like Mm -hmm. that that had to be strange because we'd probably been hanging out for three months, something like that. You know, I mean, Heather hadn't, I hadn't noticed anything like that. Yeah. So that was the first time. It was just a bizarre out of nowhere rage over something that was in my opinion, nothing. Yeah. So from there, did you start dating and things felt normal again? Like this was just a kind of a one-time incident. Oh, let me tell you, <laughs> girl. Well, so here's what happens. It's like, for me, little things would happen out of nowhere. So, so maybe that, that rage didn't show itself again, but I mean, it did eventually, but it didn't show itself soon. So after a few weeks, you're able to forget about that. Oh, okay. That was just one of those things. Surely I was correct. Cause again, I'm smart. I'm talented. I'm like, blah, blah, blah. You know, all the things that you grow, people tell you when you're growing up, surely that didn't happen. But then I realized like he started to sort of pick at, at my, my dream at that time was what Mm. I was doing songwriting. He started to tend to pick at that and start to sort of tear it down. And well, you know, it was like little insults here and there. And any, I would say at this point that this applies to any creative. You are not always sure that what you're creating is good anyway. And so, especially when, you, when you're creating what you, you think is art, there has to be an exchange. Somebody else has to like it in order for you to be quote unquote successful. And so when he started picking at that, I already wasn't sure. I was new to mm. town. I was new to everything. I was starting all over in a whole world that I didn't know anything about. So it was really easy to get at my confidence. Uh, That was super ripe for getting in my head. I still to this day could not tell you if he was, if it was calculated. I have no idea, but Mm. I can say little by little, he broke my confidence down fights I remember having but we didn't really fight I didn't really fight back I just sort of listened and was like oh my gosh how do I manage this but it would be about me spending time with my friends Mm. and oh my gosh it's so predictable like any textbook is gonna say oh and then they start to isolate you like oh my (laughs) gosh I was right there for it oh what so yeah so he if I wanted to spend time with my friends he didn't want to come he just wanted me to you know, blow them off and just hang out with him. 
And so it, it was just like this ridiculous cycle. You're looking back going, oh my gosh, I could be like on an episode of some lifetime movie or something. Like <laughs> it was yeah. so there, but you don't, you don't see you, and you when you're in the middle of it, you just can't see it. Well, exactly. And that's the thing, right? It's entirely different when you're in it versus you're out of it. Right. You're making all of these um, assumptions like people can't be inherently bad or someone, they can't be trying to tear me down. They can't, how could anyone be that calculating? And and then you, for me, I'm like, well, of course they're not. Like, what's wrong with me? Why am mm. I taking this so hard? Why don't I just stand up to him and say, no, the fight that would ensue after that became this whole other drama, this whole other dramatic mess. And so eventually it just wasn't worth it anymore. Jess. Yeah. So um, it was a lot of very vague confusing years um, before I realized I had anything directly to heal from. Um, I moved out on my own at about 15, as you can imagine, with a a history of trauma um, and abuse. It was not exactly a great household for me to be in. Um, So at 15, I left. Uh, I moved out west. I moved in with my dad for a little bit and uh, unfortunately didn't get along with his wife too well. So she booted me out after a couple months. Um, And so I was kind of completely on my own at a very early age. Um, I had a boyfriend at the time who followed me out West when I left. He uh, was not the most supportive person. It was a very toxic relationship. Um, There was a lot of abuse in there as well. So it was kind of a constant um, cycle of abuse for a lot of years uh, before I got myself to a stable place where I could actually reflect and where my brain would allow me to start kind of processing what had happened. Uh, for a long time, actually, my childhood was basically a complete black hole. It kind of felt like I just like sprung up out of nowhere, um, which I'm sure you hear often as that's the brain's defense mechanism, just trying to protect you. Um Yeah, I was just in survival mode for a very, very long time. Um, I started getting very short and fleeting flashbacks um, that kind of showed me that something was wrong. But in the situation that I was in, I just kept pushing them away um, because to add any more stress to what was already going on with me, I don't think would have been very uh, survivable, I guess is the word that I would use. Um, yeah. And then like little by little, I was consistently and constantly improving my own situation. So I kind of saw schooling and education as a way out of the trauma and the abuse and stuff that I'd been dealing with, uh, all of my life up to that point. Um, so I focused on my grades, uh, even though I was, you know, living on my own, working full time at the time while going to school, Um, I was able to graduate high school with honors, which was amazing, got a scholarship to university and started uh, my degree in psychology and criminology. Um, Funny thing is, like, even throughout this degree, I didn't really realize that a lot of the things I was discussing in classes uh, pertain to me in my situation. I I didn't see the clues. Um, I wasn't able to basically... um, use that information in my own life to assess my situation. It didn't really 
permeate the mindset of, oh my gosh, this is what's happening to me. This is what I'm dealing with. It was more um, just try to get through this, just try to get through this more and more and I'm going to be better and life will be better when I graduate. Um, So I think it was that survival mode that kind of, again, stopped me from realizing what was going on with me. Yeah, um, I definitely, I I isolated myself a lot. I dealt with a lot of anxiety, um, depression, confusion. There was a lot of anger that was built up and fear. Um, Mm -hmm. I I had a lot of thoughts of hurting myself, but didn't actually uh, do anything to hurt myself. Um, I definitely had thoughts of suicide. And uh, the one phrase that kind of goes in like, comes up in my head, I guess, when I think about those times is that I would always remind myself, um, and sorry, this might be a bit shocking for people to hear, but uh, something I would say to myself is always, oh, I can kill myself later. Like, if I might as well kind of try my best and see where it gets me, and if it gets worse, I can always just do that then. But if I do it, there's no way back from that kind of thing. So it was kind of a justification for me to keep going, to keep trying and just kind of see how far I could get myself without you know, making things worse. Yeah. Well, speaks so much to your resilience of how you were able to keep going. I mean, I I can't even imagine. Yeah, it was a really, really hard time Um, at university as well. I lost three close family members. So um, my dad passed away first um, when I was about 21. And then Um, my grandmother had come to live with him from Ontario and his wife at the time, as you can imagine, she's the one who booted me out at 15. Um, She wasn't the greatest person. So she immediately put my grandmother in a hospice because she didn't have to care for her anymore. And then, so she passed away within six months of that. And then uh, five or six months after that, my grandfather passed away in Austria. So um, my mom went to go, um, be with the family at that point and help my grandmother in Austria. And so it was kind of just this whole year of complete loss and just confusion and fear and anxiety. And and yeah, as you can imagine, it just, it made things a heck of a lot worse uh, trying to deal with this stuff and trying to keep afloat. Well, it's almost like trauma on top of trauma. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Renee. So I was 26 years old, Carrie, and um, I was a brand new mum and I had been, you know, suffering in trauma and and loneliness and pain and really just trying to do this thing called life on my own since I was 10 years old when my abuse began. So by the time I arrived at that place where I thought, right, things really need to change here, I was broken. I'd been carrying shame for such a long time, as we know, Child abuse survivors in particular just carry so much shame. We can't process something that's so illogical and doesn't make sense. So I carried the shame for not only what had happened to me but also my actions afterwards, not understanding Mm -hmm. what a trauma response was. Mm. So things like addictions and self-harm and constant violent relationships, I felt like a failure. I felt Mm. like I was an idiot. I was stupid. So, you know, when I first started that, oh, my gosh, I've got some work to do here, I was broken, I was ashamed, I was fearful, and I realised quite quickly that I'd been wearing a mask my whole life, that 
told everybody else everything was great or as best as possible and inside I was just I was just dying inside I hadn't I was completely lost Mm. Well, and I like that you mentioned that in terms of the trauma response, because I think that often is the cycle that then women get so trapped in because maybe you are making choices that then are this further down the line kind of shame spiral. And to get yourself out of that feels really tricky sometimes. Um, So I'm wondering if you can speak to maybe a little bit of what that felt like or how you found yourself in those choices. Yeah, look, I I had no sense of identity and I didn't realise that at the time. You know, these things became much more apparent when, A, I realised that I could start a healing journey, that things could be different, mm-hmm. and then, B, once you start that journey, you start following steps or, or, you know, whether it's going to therapy or surrounding yourself with great people. As you start learning what to do, you hear things like, identity and I I coach women and one of the first things we talk about Mm -hmm. is identity and someone asked me that question and I had no idea how to answer and I said well Mm -hmm. what do you mean and I really struggled with that and what I realized was I had no idea who I was I had no idea what I stood for what I believed in Mm -hmm. I'd never had a healthy role model Mm. Um, my mother was an alcoholic my father wasn't in the home since I was a young child and my mum's boyfriends and our family friends were the ones that abused me sexually and physically so my opinion of the world was totally flawed and I thought everybody was the same and I thought that was normal Mm. Mm. so for you it just felt like this is how life is Absolutely. Yeah. This, this dysfunctional and constantly operating from a place of crisis mm. and always being hypervigilant, you know, oh, when's the next thing going to happen? Because I can remember even now just talking about it, I can remember nights of hearing the bedroom door open and just freezing and mm. seeing that dark shadow come into my bedroom and just knowing what was about to happen and just constantly being on edge. And I carried that into my adolescence and then my early adult years as well. And, you know, somebody would drop something and I would jump 10 feet through the ceiling and everybody would look at me like, what's your problem? Everything was just that hypervigilant primal state all the time. I was in survival mode. That's what I found out later on. I'd gone from freeze Mm. to flight. And I was like looking for the nearest exit to get out of there. And again, once I started understanding about trauma and how it affects our nervous system and brain, these, these um, you know, terminologies and, and processes, I began to understand. And that's when I started to feel more normal per se. Mm. So when did you know something really had to change? Was there a pivotal <sighs> moment or something that oh, happened? Yes. <laughs> Yeah, it was the birth of my daughter. Mm. So throughout my life, I had tried to make changes or what I comprehended to be changes back then. So I would try not to take drugs that weekend or I would Mm. try not to get rolling drunk maybe and just have a couple of drinks, just make it social. I would try not to self-harm and, you know, that constant, oh, I'll be better tomorrow, thinking it was about being good. Mm. I attempted suicide twice. So when that didn't work, I felt like I'd failed at that. So it wasn't as though I had not tried to make changes or get better. But the birth of my daughter, I can remember it like it was yesterday, Carrie, Mm. taking her home from the hospital, being alone in the home, in the house with her for the first time, and just looking at this 
totally defenseless human being that had not been asked to be brought into the world that was totally reliant on me and defenseless. And that was when it was it was like this inner fire ignited in me and I just knew then and there that I had to do whatever it took to ensure she did not have a life like mine. My mother neglected me my whole life and I just refused wholeheartedly to allow that to become her reality. Heather. Yes. So I had a very toxic life growing up, abuse of all kinds of sorts. And I always knew, even at a very young age, I wanted to be Benson and Stabler in SVU. And I just thought, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to protect kids. I'm going to protect them. Like not everything that's bad that's happening to me, I'm going to protect them. And as I got older and had my own relationships and even more things, I was like, I have to, I have to help people. I have to get them out of these situations. But with that, I shut down. I shut down all of myself. and. I was promiscuous. I was looking for love that I didn't get in all the wrong places. And I wound up in very abusive situations on my own. Once I left my parents, um, I left my parents at 16 and went into foster care. And I, I needed to get out. I needed to. And I started realizing a lot of things that were going on in my own life. And I saw an opportunity to change that, but I wasn't sure how. Mm. And I was in a very depressed state. I have some terminal illnesses that I thought, you know, I'm not going to be around. So what's the point? Just live life. And I was ready to die. I was ready to my abuse my whole life. I was like, you know what? I've had one bad thing after another. What's the point? But the one thing everyone always said was, how are you so happy, Heather? How are you always helping everybody else? Mm. And I didn't understand. I just knew that that I had to. I had to because I don't want anybody else to go through what I did alone. Mm. So through the pain and suffering, you were able to see that this is not how it should be. And you wanted to almost protect other people from feeling that way. Pretty much. And at a young age, I just knew something's not right. Mm. And I'd question it. And everybody would, the one thing everyone did was call me a liar, call me a drama queen, call me emotional, call me too much, all of these things, because something in my body was always saying, ah, ah, ah. Mm. And, but I was so trained eventually by these people that I'm supposed to trust, my parents, role models around that my red flags and my stuff that came up in me was you're wrong. We're right. And it totally took me off track of being able to protect myself. And, and, but I always fought for that. Mm. And I think sadly it's so common. That's generally one of the most common themes of every woman I talk to that's been through any type of abusive situation, whether it's, you know, small, quote unquote, small or large scale. And that it's always that feeling of there must be something wrong with me. Mm -hmm. And I felt like that for a very long time. And I carried that in from my parents to friendships, to relationships, to my health, to all these things that clearly it's got to be me because these things keep happening. And in, in a way I do take, now I take responsibility for 
part of it was me because I allowed people to treat me this way or, mm. or not, not saying that the abuse down to the, sure. that wasn't. But as I got older, it was, well, you keep choosing these people. You keep this, you keep repeating these patterns. You keep like, at some point you have to take responsibility. It's not everybody else's who did these things to you. Yeah. They play a part, but 12 years ago that happened and I'm still holding on to it now. Right. And that played a big part in I'm, I'm ready to change. Stephanie. Oh, well, you know, my best friend always says, she's like, no story is ever fun if you say life is always perfect and then here I am. So lucky <laughs> for me, um, it was not easy like that. It actually started out really difficult. You know, my parents argued a lot growing up and I started to have this feeling that love was uncomfortable. I never really mm-hmm. knew that love was a safe, calm place. And so when I started dating, I just never felt very comfortable. And I was, I was coming from a place of lack, you know, feeling like I wasn't good enough. I wasn't enough for the person that I was dating. And so I basically had one relationship after the other, where it was just really unhealthy. First relationship ended because the police were called because he had taken my phone, thrown it across the room, calling my friends at three of them in the morning, calling me a whore, even though he was the one who came home at three o'clock in the morning drunk. Mm. And so I ended that. We were together for seven and a half years and I pretty much started dating immediately and met someone else and figured, Hey, I'm getting older. I was only 27 years old. Um, when I, when I broke up with my first long-term boyfriend, I turned 28 and I said, okay, this guy that I'm dating now, he's good on paper. He's got some good potential. He asked me to marry him. Let's just do it. So even though there was a whole bunch of red flags, um, we decided to get married and we got married at a beautiful place called Ohiga Castle, which is in Long Island. It's like a place that, you know, the rich and famous get married there. And so it should have been way more exciting than it was. I wanted to get married on the beach, but the ex wanted to show off. So that was where we got married was Ohiga Castle. And what turned into, or started as a fairy tale ended up turning into a nightmare. He chased me around our wedding suite after a beautiful day, um, just chased me around the wedding suite for about four hours because when he had drawn a bath for us, I had spilled water on the marbled floor and he got mad at me. And when I told him to relax, that wasn't the right thing to say. And so for the next four hours, he chased me around this beautiful suite. I tried to hide in different rooms, put my body up against the wall. He threw his wedding band, told me he wanted to kill me, told me it was the worst mistake of his life marrying me. And it culminated with him taking me, throwing me on the four post bed and strangling me until I thought that I was going to lose consciousness. Oh my gosh. And yeah. And I... I just remember looking at him and thinking, this is the man that I chose to marry and this is the man that's going to kill me. And Mm. luckily, the darkness that was in his eyes, if you've ever been around someone who's lost their temper to that extreme, there was a darkness. And when he, it was like a, a light flashed like back on and he saw what he was doing and got off of me. And I just curled up in a ball and started crying and thinking, what am I going to do? I can't stay married to this man. I mean, this is awful. I can't believe that I did this. This is ridiculous. This is awful. And he came back and said all, of course, the right things. Never Mm going to do this again. I was, you know, there's all these excuses. I did it because I was stressed out from the day and, you know, whatever things you could possibly think of, there was a reason and an excuse. And he promised me he would never do it again. And if he did, I could, you know, get a divorce and he wouldn't give me a problem at all. And we had a limo coming to pick us up at like five in the morning to go to the Dominican Republic. And I was thinking about all the people that I had at this wedding, family that I had from Europe, 
the minister that married us was like a family friend since I was little. I mean, I was so ashamed, so embarrassed, and just felt so guilty for having married this man and thinking, I'm going to, I'm going to make my family look bad. I'm going to look bad, you know, and I, I didn't even know what to do. And finally I said, fine, let's just, we'll go to the Dominican Republic and we'll see what happens. And we, we went and it took a day or two. And then I started to relax a little bit. And of course, if that was the end of the story, then I would still be married. But, you know, it took about two months for him to start really showing his true colors again. And there was more strangling, more pushing, more having him thrown out, him coming back, living somewhere else, coming back, starting therapy, ending therapy, you know, waking me up at three o'clock in the morning, dumping everything out on the floor and screaming at me until I picked it all up. And, you know, just very traumatic things. And luckily at five years in, I started to feel like, Hey, I don't know if I want to do this for the rest of my life. There's gotta be more than this. You know, there's, I just had this feeling there has to be more. And I decided to start making a plan to get out. And a friend of mine said, if you ever want to leave, come stay with me. And I said, okay, I'll keep that in the back of my mind. I started putting money to the side um, and putting clothes in my car in case I needed to get out and hurry. And one day I was working a second job and he texted me telling me he had quit his job, that he was working as a waiter. He was supposed to make a lot of money that day. And I said, I, I texted him back and I said, please, sweetheart, go and get your job back. And he's, his, his exact words were, just like typical cunt bitch Stephanie not to support her husband. All in big mm. caps, of course. And I look at that and I'm like, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> like, what the fuck? Like, really? I, I am here working a second job and he's going to quit his job after not paying for any bills. I was the one paying for everything. He's treating me like crap. And I was like, I'm done. So I called up my friend, texted my friend because I was at a drop. I couldn't call on the phone. So I texted my friend and said, is the offer still open? She said, yes. And the next day I moved my stuff with it when he wasn't around, moved it all to my friend's house and started the divorce process and got away. Oh my goodness. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I am so happy you are here listening to season three and that we are getting to dive into the beginning of where all these women were at the beginning of their stories and their journey. And what I love most about each of these women is their willingness to share their vulnerability in sharing, their bravery in sharing, and that they have such a passion and heart for helping women worldwide to know that you are not alone. You are so not alone. And there are tools and resources and stories that you can tap into and you can borrow belief from these women who are being so courageous and brave to bring you along on their journey to take you back in time to share their lessons and their stories of what it looked like and speak out because as you know, I talk about this often and I will continue to talk about this forever, truly, is that shame can only grow in secret and you will always be as sick as your secrets. And so if you gain nothing else from listening to any of these episodes, it's that 
I encourage you, I implore you, I really, really challenge you to get honest with yourself, to find the safe spaces, to examine what's going on, and to know that shame can not have its footing and its hold over you when you share your stories, when you let people in, when you allow yourself the gift of being seen. And as somebody who struggled so long and so hard with this concept and now is completely obsessed with anyone who will listen and talk about this. And if you know me, you know me, it, it, I get deep, I go deep, and I don't want to live this life without the depth. And so I'm so grateful for these five women, for them bringing us along on the journey, because nothing encourages me more and lights me up more than women who have been through shit. And are willing to speak up and to say there's a different way and let me bring you along with me so that you can learn from my lessons and we can talk about it and we can heal and we can get better and we can show up as big and boldly in this world as we possibly can. So I cannot wait to share these stories with you. These women have incredible stories of what it looks like on their journeys to setting themselves free. So thank you for being here. I cannot wait to see you next week and for us to get to dive into more of what is going to unfold. So we will see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to the Set Yourself Free podcast. I am incredibly grateful that you are here supporting me and these brave guests. If you can do me a favor and take one minute to share this episode with someone that needs to hear it, I would be so grateful. And if you are willing, please go leave us a review. Each month, I will be choosing a reviewer to give a free coaching session to as a thank you for listening. One thing I know for certain is that we will forever be as sick as our secrets. Shame has no ability to grow when we share our stories in safe spaces. I'm more encouraged than you could possibly know by those that are willing to speak up, ask for help, and share with us that we are not alone. So don't forget, head on over to my website at setyourselffreellc.com, grab your free journal, and book a free 30-minute call with me to talk about the number one mindset block stopping you from the money and impact you desire to have, and one thing that you can do this week to shift it. Thanks again for being here, and we will see you next week.